Good morning, church. It's good to see everybody again. Uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We again pick up our study here in the central chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And we would be, uh, it would do us good to be reminded that Paul is turning from doctrine to devotion. He had set up a foundation of knowledge for the Ephesian Christians by which now as he expounds upon it, the essential effects of this doctrine upon their lives. One of uh, the effects of the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ and its formation of a new humanity in the church set in the image of the new Adam is unity is that the church would then be one, not divided as the Israelites were often from time to time, certainly not divided between a um, though divided in covenant that those are could be in an outward covenant and not an inward covenant. But that through Christ and his spirit, that the church would truly be one. And it would come in like manner or in logical manner that this unity wrought in the spirit would be visible. That there would be a means by which of seeing our unity. And that we would be able to see that this unity, this visible unity is made up of humility, gentleness and patience. That it's expressed in love and peace. But it's not just that this unity uh, is visible, but there's also means by which it's preserved. There's means by which it's held together that have come to us through Christ. And as we've been looking at these uh, last few weeks, is that they come to us in Christ by way of means also, by way of Christ's victory, is descending into the lower parts and then ascending on high to the right hand of the Father. So we looked closely at this idea of the local descent of Christ and the consequent local ascension of Christ. As Pastor Dana said, to sit at the right hand of the Father, to take place in his heavenly session, whereby now he rules all humanity, but specially rules the church. And this is Paul's focus. This is the spirit through Paul's focus this morning where we're at in Ephesians chapter four. How will Christ continue his reign in his kingdom, though bodily absent? Well, he does so through emissaries. He does so, does so through ambassadors. He does so through the gifting of the Spirit, through, uh, through certain offices, and in um, consequence through certain men that will hold those offices in order to build his church. 
And it's not to necessarily just the glory of the edifice of the church and the edifice of the magisterium, but to the glory of Christ in the mature man, into the building up of the body, that the body would then praise its head. And so we see here that Christ is maintaining the unity of his body through the presence of the sent spirit who imparts gifts according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Follow along as I read for us the, the fuller section as we'll be addressing, really we'll be addressing half of uh, uh, 11 through 13 this morning, but following along as I read for us Ephesians 4, 7 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts, Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us entreat his help this morning. Oh, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this morning for the word before us. Eternal Son, we give you thanks for the mediation by which we may receive the Spirit and be imparted illumination that we might not only be hearers of the Word, but doers also. May this be worked in us to your glory alone, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've noticed, as I have, but that our culture is obsessed with reviews. It seems that everything we encounter has some sort of star rating, and everything you do or site you visit eventually leads to some sort of, at least, solicitation that you would review your time, give feedback. That every online purchase comes with a follow-up email asking for input on that product. After only owning it for a few days, you're supposed to give now your perspective with also the form of a star rating in order to impart value or at least impart your enjoyment and pleasure you received from that product. Or maybe how that product lined up with um, what it was intended to do. When picking a restaurant in places I don't uh, uh, know or in choosing one I've not been to, I will check their Yelp rating. I will read the reviews. I will, I will pass over some without a glance or without just a passing glance if the star rating is too low. 
We certainly have standards when we stay at hotels, that certain star ratings, uh, you know, don't want to go down there. I don't like seeing things crawl on the walls at night. <laughs> We're bombarded with the idea that we are to approach life with a consumer mentality. That everything is at our fingertips to consume and then give feedback. And as I thought on our passage this week, I realized that the Spirit through Paul has provided the truth necessary to combat the intrusion of this cultural mindset from taking hold in the church. I'm sure we've all had those moments in our own church life or been in communication with those that have where the intent is to share what you're displeased with in the church as it relates to your preference. How you didn't feel a certain way. You didn't experience something or this person didn't do this or this person did this. You come to it, and in your mind, you may form some sort of star rating. As a matter of fact, if you go and search our church on Google, I'm pretty sure you could give us a rating uh, on that. And maybe some churches solicit that. The idea here this morning is that we would be hedged or protected from this intrusion of a cultural mindset of a consumer mentality upon the church. And it comes in the form of recognition of source and directed focus. We have the recognition of source of these of the gifting of the means by which the unity is to be maintained. And then we have the directed focus of those gifts to a given end. This morning, we'll just be addressing the recognition of source through the gifts that are imparted to the church to preserve the unity, to preserve the unity and, the, and the also strengthen and build up this new humanity, this new man into a mature man, a perfected man, the older writers say. And so as we look at our passage this morning as the recognition of source, it is in him, in Christ, that all Christian teaching originates and through his spirit that it takes hold of men's hearts. He sends the same spirit who raised him from the dead to provide ongoing resurrection life and to enable this growth. He gives these gifts. Now we have the common gifts in verse 4 of Ephesians 4. One body and one spirit called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There's the comparative, but to each of us then, in verse 7, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. So as Christ ascends on high, 
He also ascends as mediator and as we, the office of mediator of prophet, priest, and king that we addressed last week. He then provides that to his church. He continues to mediate to his church. And so when we get to verse 11, and he gave some as apostles and so on, Paul continues this line of thought that Christ specially gifts men for the task at hand. Eventually, uh, next or the next time I, I preach, we'll be addressing to what end for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service to the building up of the body of Christ. There's much to explain in that verse. It's why this is coming in a two part sermon. We're going to take time and looking at that verse to analyze it as it was constructed in translations of old, finding two commas, one after equipping the saints and then one in our Bibles after work of service. And then finally, to appointed goal for an appointed season. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And then eventually we'll praise God as we see the effects of this, that we would no longer be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. And that all the saints would be speaking the truth in love. That all the saints would be growing up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. This morning we look that the source of this gifting is Christ. So that as we look at them, and they are in some ways ranked in, a, in importance, though not hierarchical, not, <clears throat> not in a way that would, uh, when we get to that uh, heavenly land, or when the heavenly land descends or is made new, we don't find uh, this is uh, status of of rank there, but here, here in the time of building and equipping, there of course are going to be supervisors and foremen. There's of course going uh, to be a different set of importance. It's really related more as Paul does to a body or maybe more fitted to a building. How important is the foundation of a building to a building? I think if you look at uh, the Tower of Pisa, we can understand the importance of a foundation. We, we know in other places how important a foundation is, and we know how even pinnacally important it is in that foundation, as it used to be made of stones, is the cornerstone. And so we're able to see that though there is some ordering of importance, the point is not to draw attention to that. The point is to draw back attention to the source of it. That this idea is that these gifts are to work through the word of Christ. 
Where, as I said, the last time I preached that the apostles were to record the word, and certainly the apostles exhibited many of these other gifts, but chiefly they were to record the word of Christ. The prophets were to foretell the word of God. They were also to explicate, explicate greater the prophets of old. The evangelists were sent to spread the word of God. And pastors and teachers, pastors as shepherds to minister the word and teachers to expound the word. And though we will look at all these offices individually, we should not lose the forest for the trees. The forest is the edification or the building of the body of Christ. It's the overall concern here. Toward that end, Christ gave gifts to the church. That his body would be nourished. That his body would be built up. That the work he began would then be completed through these means. We're going to address these uh, in uh, three sections because as we, can see, as we see, the apostles and prophets provide a foundationally important role. The evangelists have a transitional role, though there is some uh, ties to common, the common position of missionary. And then pastors and teachers we will take as one. And uh, I will agree with the commentators that see them as one in the same office. Though distinct in uh, their, uh, the role of each idea. So as we look at this, we see that these apostles and prophets, that they received the word of God by direct revelation. And thus served as part of the foundation of the church that succeeding generations of believers are built on. Neither of these gifts was meant to be a permanent part of the church's endowment. They played a unique role in the plan of God for the first generation of the church. So that as we see that the office of apostle, the office of prophet does not continue on today. For God's complete revelation of himself has been completed in the canon of Scripture. That God has laid a foundation and a good foundation, a perfect foundation, an infallible foundation in the writings of the apostles. And so we recognize that though these were important, necessary, vital gifts, they were not to be a permanent part of the church in presence of office. They are a permanent part of the church as Pastor Dana will be preaching through Jude as they are, have set down the faith that will be passed down. In that, they are permanent. That there is an apostolic doctrine to be passed down and to be preached. But not permanent as is, we name no further apostle. We name no further prophet. Well, what is the source? Again, we've been, I've been talking about the idea that the, the, to have the idea that there's a recognized source of these gifts. 
John chapter 20 shows us the source of the apostleship. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. If you'd like to turn there, you may do so. It reads in verse 19, So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, not an inconsequential detail, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, this is after Christ's resurrection, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Consider this wonderful picture of the risen Christ. He says, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. The idea of apostle is a, is a messenger. Apostle is used in, in other forms and in, in other conjugants as it relates to different people and different activity in the New Testament. But as it relates to the office of apostle, it's, it's a sent one. It's one who's been commissioned for a, per for a specific purpose by an authoritative person. And so here, Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, commissions and sends the disciples, making them apostles. And it's not without anointing. It's not without an anointing of their work because he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. The significance of this Trinitarian action is beyond the scope of this message this morning. But if we consider that Christ in his humanity breathes on the apostles and is able to spirate the spirit as we use eternal language. Certainly the spirit existed not in the droplets of breath coming out of the incarnate Christ. But the message is clear that from the son proceeds the spirit and rests upon these men, commissioning them as apostles. Here is the source of their apostleship. It's further explained and explicated in, in later in um, the gospel narratives as we read in the Great Commission and then also there at the ascension of Christ at the beginning of the book of Acts. But here... He says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you, Father, Son, Spirit. Thomas Boston says their great work was to plant and found churches through the world. Being endued with, the, with an infallibility in teaching, according to John 16, 13, they had power to work miracles and to confer the visible gifts of the Holy Spirit by imposition of their hands and were eyewitnesses of Christ. And we know added to the 12 was the one who was as of late born, the Apostle Paul. 
who sees the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, who receives the Spirit there uh, when he comes and meets Ananias. This idea of apostles is as a gift to the church. They're a gift to the church and they're, they're a um, ex expected gift. That as the Lord raised up the writers of the Old Testament, so he would raise up new writers. New writers to record his revelation both in his life and after his ascension. Again, Calvin helps us. Their office was to spread the doctrine of the gospel throughout the whole world, to plant churches and to erect the kingdom of Christ. They had not churches of their own committed to them, but the injunction given to all of them was to preach the gospel wherever they went. These men saw themselves as first builders and foundation layers in the church. Paul says as much in the earlier parts of Ephesians. They knew they were foundational in their writing. Peter says in his letters that, that, they're, that they are to search the scriptures or they are to look to the scriptures. And he also says that Paul and his writings, they're difficult to understand. They, they understood that there was an inscripturation happening as they wrote. That's turning a little bit too in. Go down. See how that works. Well, what is the idea of these prophets? Turn with me to Acts chapter 11, and uh, we can see the source here. Or we can see at least uh, the explanation, the identification of this office in its specific form. In Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 27, Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that, that there would certainly be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. We see in, in other places that attributed uh, to other uh, men this office of prophet. But here we have Agabus... Indicating by the Spirit, prophetically, a foretelling of future events. And it says after that, that so then what happened? The church responded by the collection of funds, understanding that they would then take care of one another through this famine. Gill, John Gill says, and some prophets by whom are meant not private members of churches who may all prophesy or teach in, in a private way, nor ordinary ministers of the word, but extraordinary ones who had a peculiar gift of interpreting the scriptures, the prophecies of the Old Testament and of foretelling things to come. Such were Agabus and others in the church of Antioch. I'll run out of voice if I keep it down there. 
And so we see this office of prophet here take form in scripture. And we see the source. The source is the spirit. The spirit is the one who descends at Pentecost. The source here is the triune God who works inseparably to the accomplishment of his decretal will. We move on in the lists of, list of, of these gifts, of these offices, and we see that there is apostles. He gave and some apostles, and he gave some prophets, some as prophets and some as evangelists. Again, Thomas Boston was helpful. He says they were a kind of preachers of the gospel who were companions of the apostles in their travels, assisting them in the work of the gospel, being sent out by them to settle and water such churches as the apostles had planted. They were not fixed pastors of any particular church, but remained in these places whither the apostles sent them till they were by them recalled. Such were Tychicus, Silvanus, and others, and particularly Timothy and Titus. We often look at Timothy and Titus, and we think that Timothy and Titus were pastors of, of one pastor of Ephesus, and one was a pastor of Crete. Yet the office they held in that church, though there were overlapping responsibilities, because in strengthening and establishing a church, there's obviously going to be the exercising of pastoral care and the care of teaching and ruling, they were sent by the Apostle Paul to these places for the purpose of either establishing a church or strengthening it such that they could be recalled and resent. And so these evangelists were to take the gospel to the unreached world or the unsettled church. We can, if you read Timothy, the letters to Timothy with this uh, reality, you, you see greater that, that Paul is sending him to establish this church, not to set himself up as an elder, but then to what? Call men to recognize the elders. We see similar writing to Titus. The closest thing that this can be compared to in our day as an ongoing office is missionary, missionaries or mission work. The question we must ask ourselves is what is the mission of missionaries? Well, the idea is that they would be under the commission of a local church to establish or strengthen a local church. So where we find the discontinuity is that they're under the commission of a local church, not the commission of an apostle as the evangelists were, but they have the same work in establishing or strengthening a local church. And so we see in Timothy who was to do the work of an evangelist, that he was tasked with strengthening of the church, but specifically through instruction in establishing the officers of the church. I should say that, uh, that this list of offices is here in concert, but not uh, exhaustive. For you may recognize the office of deacon isn't in the list. And that goes back to 
my point prior is that the emphasis in, the, in these offices have to do with the word of Christ. And so as we come down to pastors and teachers, we find that those that that office of pastor teacher or of elder or of bishop that we all view synonymous or of overseer continues on in the church, but in conjunction with the other office of the church, which is deacons. But here, as we look at pastors and teachers, we can see a synthesis of these two roles in Paul's exhortation to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. Is not God the ruler of his church and the ruler of his worship that without coordination, we read the first 16 verses of Acts chapter 20, to which now we will pick up in verse 25 of Acts 20. He begins speaking to them in verse 18, or verse 17. In verse 25, in speaking to the Ephesian elders, he says, And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourself and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Consider verse Verse 28, 28, the source of this gifting, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Consider Paul's words there. In verse 28, he calls them shepherds. In verse 32, he commends them to the word. That they were to be pastors and to be teachers, to be guides and instructors. Pastors are, are ones with oversight. They were to oversee, but they were also to be shepherds. So they were not to lead as the world leads in lording over their authority, or at least the flesh leads in lording over their authority, but they are to be shepherds. And they are to be under shepherds of the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. We regard, as we saw in Acts chapter 20, but we also can regard this position as to its source from 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. 
the source of a pastor's shepherding is the chief shepherd. It's not leadership manuals. It's not wisdom of the world. It's the wisdom of Christ. It is the chief shepherd who installs his under shepherds. It is the chief shepherd who is the source. It is the chief shepherd who is the exemplar of the under shepherds. So that when you find pastors in places and we hear about pastors in places, Lord, prevent me from falling into this category or if I have, forgive me. But if you, you hear of pastors who crush their sheep under the weight of their domineering, sometimes under the weight of their preaching of law without gospel, we should cringe to consider that the sheep have to suffer under that, for it was not the intention of the chief, chief shepherd for it to be so. For he was to guide and lead his sheep into green pastures. Well, very much coupled with this idea of to be a shepherd or a guide is to be an instructor. It was Christ who instructed the disciples to teach the church to observe all that he commanded. This is continued on into the evangelists and then from sometimes directly from the apostle to the elders as we read in, in Acts, but from the evangelists to the elders as we read in Timothy. The elders were to guard the word of God, that they were to teach what accords with sound doctrine, that they were to exhort the brethren. Calvin says the government of the church by the preaching of the word is first of all declared to be no human contrivance but a most sacred ordinance of Christ. The apostles did not appoint themselves, but were chosen by Christ. And at the present day, true pastors do not rashly thrust themselves forward by their own judgment, but are raised up by the Lord. No man will be fit or qualified for so distinguished an office who has not been formed and molded by the hand of Christ himself. To Christ we owe it that we have ministers of the gospel, that they abound in necessary qualifications, that they execute the trust committed to them all. All is his gift. Brothers and sisters, this is why we covet and entreat your prayers as elders of Covenant Baptist Church. It is a high and lofty calling to be considered this, to be considered to be formed and molded by the hand of Christ himself. It's something beyond understanding in many ways in my own mind. And it's certainly beyond ability to hold it without the work of the Spirit of God through the means of your prayers. But to be a teacher, to be a pastor teacher, to, to instruct the sheep is to protect them. As we see later on in our passage, it's to protect them. That they would not be tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind and doctrine. That they be protected from the trickery of men, by the, from the craftiness and deceitful scheming. To instruct in the word of God is to protect the sheep. It's to care for those that have been given 
under the care of the shepherd and teacher. And it's to exhort, speaking the truth in love, to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. We recognize that this ongoing gift of the office of pastor-teacher is important in the building up of the body of Christ and should not be easily and wantonly laid aside. And by that, I mean, as we will uh, conclude this morning, that we should not easily and wantonly lay aside the preaching of the word. We can talk about the... Um, overbearing shepherding that often happens in the context of Christian churches where pastors seek to dive into every nook and cranny of your life and to offer uh, advice that need not be given. Certainly advice can be solicited by all means and counsel can be given. But brothers and sisters, pastors and teachers are primarily ministers of the gospel. Gospel. So that if you come to your pastors for advice and we can give you as best we can of, of sound advice and maybe some wisdom of the word of God, our first goal is to minister the gospel to your question. Our first responsibility is by which we are to be held accountable. It's by which, by which I would want to be exhorted and admonished by you is, oh, Pastor Nate, you said, you said this. I think it doesn't comport with the gospel. It doesn't comport with the word of God. Brothers and sisters, if you're afraid to do that, be not afraid. It is hard as it is to hear. It does warm my heart because that means you're paying attention to what I'm saying. And you're thinking about it in light of scripture and being good Bereans. Let us have those conversations. The apostles and prophets provided the initial and normative teaching. It is preserved in the New Testament, which parallels the old. Evangelists proclaim the core of this teaching, centered in the gospel of redemption from sin by Jesus Christ. Pastors and teachers instruct and care for the flock through an even fuller communication of scriptural truth. So can we see that a consumerist mentality has no place in the church because they all find their source in Christ? The pastors that are provided to you, and, and, I, and I know I speak this in a way that seems self-serving, but hopefully I'm preaching from the word of God, that the pastors and elders provided to you have been provided to you by Christ and are being formed and molded by Christ. Not your preferences. For hopefully, if you've ever spoken to me at length, the idea is, is that you would be encouraged to turn to Christ. That if you're looking to be fully fulfilled in my ministry, or Pastor Dana's ministry, you're looking too low. 
May you be ministered the gospel of Christ and his word in any situation that you have and certainly on the Lord's day on a regular basis. But if you look for the fullness of the ministry and you look to me and Pastor Dana, you're looking too low. You must look to the source. You must trust in his provision because the church does not exist for our purchasing pleasure. When you give your tithes and your offerings, they are a gift to the church. They are not a purchase of a commodity. Charles Hodge, quoting John Calvin, writes, He could not, says Calvin, exalt more highly the ministry of the word than by attributing, attributing to it this effect. For what higher work can there be than to build up the church that it may reach its perfection? They, therefore, are insane who, neglecting this means, hope to be perfect in Christ, as is the case with fanatics who pretend to, to secret revelations of the Spirit and the Proud who content themselves with the private reading of Scripture and imagine they do not need the ministry of the church. And then continuing in his own words, he says, If Christ has appointed the ministry for the edification of his body, it is in vain to expect that end to be accomplished in any other way. This doesn't mean that we are to whitewash real deficiencies in the ministry. This doesn't mean that we overlook true transgression. But that those deficiencies are to arise from a study of the word of God. And so that our preferences and sensibilities would fade away into the directed focus of our joint goal. To be imitators of God as beloved children and be filled with the spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with our heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks for all the things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And when you are dismayed at your lack of these things. When you may be dismayed at the lack in your pastors in some sensibility or preference. Look to your head, who is Christ, and know that he has supplied you with every good thing to fit you for himself. It's in Hebrews that there is the testimony of the faithfulness of God through all generations. And at the end of it, it says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we give you thanks this morning. For I trust that as you have promised in your word, that the word that has gone out, that has been true to your scripture, will not return void to those that have been united to the Son and are indwelt with the Spirit. Lord, help us to trust you every week as we gather through these ordinary means. 
to speak to us, to draw near to us, to comfort us, exhort us, and admonish us, to teach us and correct us, to guide us, Lord, to bind us together, to build us up into the mature man that we may rejoice with our glorified head at the working of the one true and living God. We give you thanks. We continue to ask your abiding presence in the further means of your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.